a lot for tuning in to another edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel, where we try to tackle the issues and all the information associated with cannabis. And we try to do it in a way that makes sure we can bring you some information that will help educate you to be able to navigate this space in your own community. And we bring on guests from all walks of life and every experience in the cannabis space. And I am so proud and happy today to have a guest who is known as South Florida's medical cannabis and CBD expert and educator. She's a double board certified interventional pain management and physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist. She practices personalized medicine, focusing on the root causes of illness and offering individualized holistic treatment options. She's also involved in conducting research and using cannabis as a substitute for opioids. And this is just, I'm just so happy to have her here with us today. So make sure you tune in, call your friends, let them know Dr. Michelle Wiener is here. Thank you so much, doctor, for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. For those who don't know you or know a lot about you, let's back up a little bit and tell them a little bit about your history. Sure. So I'm a physician and I got my master's in public health because I had an interest in research early on. And so I'm a little bit more holistic in my practice and I did interventional pain and I found that a lot of the patients continuously have chronic pain despite the medications and injections that I was doing. And so I knew there had to be some other alternative. A lot of the natural supplements are not really effective for severe pain. So cannabis became legal three years ago in Florida, and I just started reading and learning as much as I possibly could about it, thinking that I heard this has been happening in other states, and now potentially I could help my patients by bringing it in and using it as a substitute. And so with my clinical practice and my research experience, I started to uh, put the patients on CBD and then get them their medical marijuana cards and see how they were able to substitute um, their medication. And so they would come back and tell me, well, not only is my pain much better and not only am I taking less meds, but I'm also sleeping better and my mood improves. So besides just being a pain physician, I started actually seeing all types of patients for medical cannabis. And now I'm just a huge advocate and I really like to educate other physicians so that they do it well, so that we get rid of the stigma and so that patients can have quality of life, which is really why I went into medicine. And it's kind of transferred into more lifestyle or personalized medicine, as opposed to just Western medicine, where you have a diagnosis and a medication that um, you a can PDR, to that a book patient. that says A plus B exactly. equals C, which it doesn't. A plus right. B sometimes equals W. Right, exactly. Right? Yes. And so the patients were just very frustrated, and I felt like I wasn't helping. I really wasn't helping them, and that's why most of us go into medicine You know, originally. I actually had such a, a personal interest because my grandmother, who was a very wise and, and uh, brilliant woman, had severe osteoarthritis and osteoporosis, had multiple uh, spine fractures, and was couldn't take anti-inflammatories because of GI bleeds and, and blood pressure. And she ended up on a medication called tramadol, which is a weak opioid. Crazy. And which is it, what they inject in a lot of football players and athletes in contact sports before they go out on the field. Really? Which is absolutely ridiculous to me. You know, we, we have the audacity in this country to, you know, every once a week for four or five months out of the year, we jump up and down and applaud, applaud people who run at about 50 to 60 miles an hour, smash into each other trying to take a person's head off, and we scream and say, oh, it's so great. And the second we hear that one of them has been using a cannabinoid, we go ballistic. But we don't even understand that their coaches... And the team doctors 
literally line them up in a line before they walk out of the dressing room to go out on the field for that Sunday afternoon game. And these guys lined up with their pants down being injected with tramadol so that they can go out on the field and perform. Right, and that's the problem with the opioids is that they actually are just a big Band-Aid and they will not allow you to feel pain, which is actually more dangerous. And right. as opposed to the cannabinoids, it kind of puts your mind into your body so that you're really connected and, and aware of what's going on so you know your limits. So to block it with an opioid is not really getting to any functional root cause and it's actually could be more dangerous. You know, let's, let's, let's stay in this area backed up a little bit because, you know, when you talk about, you know, how you became an advocate, you know, you graduated from college traditionally, like everybody else. They didn't teach you in medical school about the endocannabinoid system, did they? No, of course not. There's And the research, you know, you're, you're, you're a very young lady, so, you know, this wasn't something that is brand new. We've known about the endocannabinoid system for close to 20 years. Right. With money that was funded by the U.S. government... In places like Israel, funding Dr. Raphael Mashulam, who was the guy who is now accredited with discovering what THC is, what CBD is, and also actually accredited with discovering the endocannabinoid system. We literally funded that. Our taxpayer dollars funded that and allowed the U.S. government to then go ahead and grant itself a patent mm -hmm. where in its abstract, it completely outlines every single thing that they know is for fact that this drug does do, this medication does do, yet they will then talk out of the other side of their mouth and say, no medicinal benefit. Right. So it's interesting because you say it's been around for 20 years, the endocannabinoid system, which you think is a long time. For me, I think that we should have known about this a lot, a lot earlier, obviously. So it's a lipid uh, soluble type of um, system. And that's why we weren't really aware of it because opioids, things like that are water soluble. So well, when you, when you say we should have known about it, absolutely should have known about it because under George W. Bush, he started the first compassionate care program over 46 years ago, funding research at the university of Mississippi. And, you know, over the course of the last 40, 46 plus years, we've been dispensing marijuana from the University of Mississippi. It started out with 20 patients. Now it's down to three patients who literally get legally grown marijuana from the U.S. government shipped in the U.S. Postal Service out to patients. Now there are only three left because, you know, the other 17 have passed away. One of them is here. Irv. Irv yeah. I've, I've interviewed Irv, I interviewed Irv on my show, I'm telling you, I think almost 14 years ago, and there was for, for about a five-year period of time sitting behind my head on the set was a canister mm -hmm. that the joints came in that I kept on my show. But you have to talk about the what's in those joints, right? Oh, some so of the worst cannabis I've made by, by man. More, more moldy, more disgusting. Right. They didn't pay attention to what they were growing. And really, it's a testament in a way to hypocrisy mm -hmm. because... We have the audacity to spend our taxpayer dollars every single year when we put together a budget for Congress. There's a line in there that funds this research. And you have, I'll tell you, 90%, 99% of the senators and congressmen that supposedly service us don't even know that they pay for this research. And the bigger issue is that the medication that they're growing is not even substantial. It's not even comparable to right. what patients are using. And so it's almost like they're setting you up for failure. They have 4% THC, there's mold in it, right. and you, it's very difficult to do this research. You need a, a DEA, a Schedule 1. So 
The problem is they have to open up for more applications so other places can grow so that they can grow medicine that we in the United States can use on our patients to do Absolutely. prospective studies. A lot of things now are in other countries or they're retrospective. And so we like to do human clinical trials that are randomized, placebo controlled, and we could only do that if they actually offer us the medication to do that with. Otherwise, we're using our own patients who are spending their own money. And that's very difficult for a lot of my patients right now. Yeah, at the same time, let's go back that 20 to 25 years ago, the federal government was spending 60 to $100 million outside of the United States funding the research that Raphael Meshulam was doing in Israel. And men turn around and claiming that they see no medical efficacy. And the fact it's, that they have patents on it, that it's yes. neuroprotectin, it has anti-tumoral effects, antioxidant, Correct. good for pain. Even the National Academy of uh, Science and Engineering came out with the fact that there's substantial evidence for cannabis to treat chronic pain. However, it's not even a condition that we can register our patients for in Florida. And you know, it's really funny. You said about three years ago when you came to this, it was, it's been now almost three years, uh, three years ago that I did a show with Mem and Oz. Oz and I, well, five years ago, we did a show just about cannabis itself. And I think that was one of the things that actually started opening up the eyes of a lot of people in this country. Because again, you know, he's got a really huge following, especially back then. And then we can we did three total shows on cannabis and the last one being the one as marijuana as a alternative to opioids and then all of a sudden you know everybody there wasn't that everybody jumped on because we were jumping on a bandwagon but the truth of the matter is that we've known that there is properties within cannabis that actually blocks and helps to reduce the absorption rate of opioids right right so if we know that it seems so ridiculous to me that we can have a conversation about trying to reduce the scourge of opioid addiction in America and not include cannabis in the conversation. But it's because, again, we weren't teaching our medical students about the endocannabinoid system. So they don't understand that we have a whole system that regulates all of our neurotransmitters, that keeps us in homeostasis, that potentially protects us from chronic disease by making our own naturally occurring cannabinoids. And what's sure. happened is... Over time now, we make less of them, and perhaps we need to substitute with cannabis in order to increase the, the rate of what we're producing in our body. And, you know, I think I, if you take a look historically, what people do not understand is that, you know, again, I've been involved in this long before it became the green rush, long before it became the gold rush. I was out here back in 2000 and 2001 and 2002 trying to, you know, lobby for and... Um, actually go out and, and across the country, I worked in eight of the earlier states that became medical states, discussing the fact that a patient should have a right to a private conversation with their doctor. Mm -hmm. If I am not going to get involved in a conversation with you about your prescribing chemotherapy to someone, and I, I talk about this, I, mean, I, I had a daughter who recently, well now it's been three years and God bless she is, is cancer free, but, you know, uh, almost four years ago, my daughter went through, you know, two bouts of lymphoma. And, you know, I'll never forget the second, you know, she, she had it started. She went to one of the top hospitals in the country. As a matter of fact, her doctor is the doctor who's written the last three protocols for lymphoma treatment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they knocked it down first time around. Knocked it out. It was gone. Told her that she was pretty much cured. You're okay. She went home. She called me about three months later and said, you know, it's really weird that I'm starting to feel really weird. I got to went, oh my God, come back. Because it does come back and sometimes it comes back and it came back to her with a vengeance. 
So I go in and my daughter at the time was 25 still and, and blessedly because of the Affordable Care Act, she was on my insurance. So I was able to you know, sit in the room with her when she was talking to the doctor and I'm sitting there in this room talking and this doctor's having a conversation with her about the chemo that he was about to give her that was going to make all her hair fall out, her skin fall off, and she could throw up her esophagus. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And if I don't have a right to have a conversation with that doctor and intervene, and it's none of my business, it's between him and my daughter, about giving her a drug that's going to burn her from the inside out, why does anybody have the right to have a conversation between a patient and a doctor if the doctor says, I think you should use Cannabis. Well, the, the, I think the bigger issue there is the fact that so many physicians are not educated about cannabis. So if they have a conversation with their physician, they may not offer any uh, you know, advice that, that is worthwhile. And, and that's the problem. 13% of medical students are teaching it. I have students from Nova Southeastern. They come and, and shadow me in my office. Mm -hmm. And it's a totally different way of, of practicing medicine and, and for them experiencing a clinical practice because we talk about the patient's goals. We don't just talk about their chief complaint. We talk about how to improve their quality of life, about sleep, their mood, trying to decrease their pharmaceuticals. It's a consultation. It's not just a rush visit to give a prescription or do another injection and send them on their way. Why do you think there's so many doctors that are leaving fingernail marks in the hallway, being dragged down the hallway to say that, you know, cannabis could be a good alternative? Why? I mean, it's, it's, if you go to things that are CMEs, you go and learn new research. I mean, there's, there's all these doctors running around here right now, you know, trying to go to a CME to get a license to be able to suck fat out of people's bodies <laughs> as a side alternative. You know, and accept that as being something, and I'll guarantee you that let's let's look excuse me, at this in about 25 years, and I have a feeling that people are going to look back on the technologies that we've been using for weight loss and say, how barbaric was the medical community? Well, how insane were they to think that you can suck a person's, you know, uh, molecules out of their body and think that there's going to be something beneficial to that in the long run? I just really believe that, they, you know, there's certain things that, the medical community accepts, oh, that's okay. Let's do that. But when it comes to cannabis, something that's been around for 5,000 years. Right, but, but physicians are trained to need, to need to see the evidence. And so it's difficult for us to do the research, and therefore they're waiting for more information. But what happens is they just start seeing their patients come in and not ask for their Xanax or their Ambien anymore, and they wonder why, and that's because they're seeing another physician and getting their cannabis recommendation. Mm -hmm. So I think they're seeing it firsthand from the patient, which is anecdotal, of course. But real-world data. Right, exactly. And, and I think more physicians are just frustrated with Western medicine right now. They know that they're not helping their patient. The patient says, my pain's 10 out of 10. Here's your prescription for oxycodone. And, I mean, we, and, and we know, that it, again, you say the physicians like research. What blows my mind is that there's not one stitch of research anywhere written on the planet that talked about opioids being an effective treatment for pain over a six-month period of time. That's correct. So, there's nothing. There's nothing right. written anywhere. Right. No, that's true. Yet, yet doctors will prescribe this crap for three and four years. Right. And the bigger problem, again, is that the patients are um, say, well, it's covered by my insurance. So there is no evidence, but the doctors continue to give it. And the problem is, is that cannabis is not covered. So it has to be something that they're willing to make that, that expense and, and take the additional money out of whatever else they need. And that's, that's the sad part about it. But once they start to use it, they're really able to see such an improvement in, 
everything going on in their lives, just open up to, you know, new mindsets. And, and that's really getting rid of the stigma. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that it does have this intoxicating or psychoactive property, obviously we're able to decrease that using CBD. Uh, however, sometimes, you know, they end up getting into this path where they're just going down over and over the same path and telling themselves the same story about their chronic pain. And Cannabis actually helps to open up their mind a little bit. Yeah, you know, but it also, you know, I, I, I asked the question of a couple of doctors that I've had on here before. What, so what, all of a sudden, all these other drugs that you have been prescribing for the last 30, 40 years, every set that there is, you know, from Percocet to Oxacet, to, you know, every set, all these kinds of drugs, every single one of them has some form of euphoric component, along with that glass of wine that people have when right. they come home after work. And nobody complains about that. Right. And we do know that over time, the euphoria from THC literally does lessen over time. As a matter of fact, most people who are, you know, lifelong cannabis users will find that, you know, their euphoria that they get, you know, 10 years in is way less than the euphoria that they got in year number one. Right. And, yeah. and we also, you know, I think, you know, I, I mentioned it to another doctor it's a, who's a friend who just, you know, and I, I've had Dr. Sanjay Gupta on this podcast and, you know, I don't know, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm the guy who kind of called Sanjay out the year before he did his first documentary. I had him and you know, I were on Pierce Morgan together, and he sat there on Pierce Morgan making statements that were really just absolutely bogus about, you know, there's no medical efficacy to cannabis. And I, I called him out. I was like, are you kidding me, dude? All you have to do is do a little research, and you find out that, you know, you've been led a, a, a really, fed a really bad line. So then he left there, went off and did his very first special. He came back on to Piers Morgan to apologize to me, okay? Because, you know, he said, you were right. I mean, I figured things out. Now, I spoke to him before he did his last special and said, you know, dude, as much as I got to say thank you for you waking up the world, I also have to say that, you know, you have to take a little bit of the, you know, the blame for misconstruing what CBD's role is, because CBD is not the only end-all cannabinoid. We know that for a fact. The guy who discovered them, Dr. Raphael Mishulam, said when he first discovered cannabinoids that they work in an entourage effect, and he is absolutely right. I think, again, 20 years from now, science is going to say, you know what, you guys were crazy stripping just one cannabinoid right. that when there's well over 160 of them that work together. Right. And some of them work to help permeate the mitochondria. Some of them help work to make it more bioavailable. Some of them speed up the process. And we haven't been doing the research on oh, CBG, CBN, THCA, THCV. There's so many different variants to these cannabinoids that really, if we isolate out and try to just go with one, I think again, 10 years from now, science is going to say, were you, were you smoking crack? Right. Well, <laughs> it's true. There's evidence about the entourage effect and whole flour seems to be the most effective because it has all the cannabinoids. However, also to remember the terpenes, the terpenes yes. are really terpenes, what guides that doubt. effect. Without a doubt. And and terpenes have been studied and researched for 50 years in other plants and food. Well, and they are, they're basically like essential oils. They are in food. Mm -hmm. However, there's really no information about dosing for terpenes. Yes, so right. when you look at flour, you get a percentage of the terpene, which is very, very, very small compared right. to the cannabinoid. 0 .001, 0 .001, right. And that's yeah. all you need to really right. guide that effect, whether you want to sleep or whether you want some more energy. Mm -hmm. You need such a small amount of a terpene, which is in food, 
that you can just take that with the other cannabinoids. The problem is when you strip it, you're right, and just take a CBD isolate. You're not going to get anywhere near the benefit that you would from whole flour or from adding other cannabinoids and terpenes. 100% complete disclosure. I have my own brand of cannabis that's been in the marketplace. I have a CBD product that is one of the only CBD products that literally has a formulated terpene profile to go with it. I also did the same thing for my THC products. Our THC products are not just THC. They are combinations, THC, CBD, and I do that in volume percentages. So I have a product that's 95% THC by volume, 5% CBD by volume. And that CBD is a mixture of CBD along with a terpene profile specifically formulated formulated for that combination. I also did the same thing with 50-50. 50% you know, CBD, 50% THC, but that 50% CBD has a different terpene profile. And then I also did the same thing for a 10% THC and 90% CBD. And that CBD product has a different terpene profile to elicit different responses. I think what we're going to end up finding out, you know, this is probably going to be one of the, the tougher regimens down the road, maybe 10 years from now, where we will be specially specialized in formulating for individuals. Right, that's personalized Ter medicine. Personalized it's it's medicine. figuring out which terpenes or, or what milligrams of which cannabinoid they mm -hmm. need. I'm now using CBG in my office. Yeah, without it, you th what they, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I've been screaming, jumping up and down. You know, I had to beat a, beat a formula. I, I, I literally use a contract uh, manufacturer and I had to beat them literally over the head senselessly. This is three years ago saying, you know, I'm not putting out just CBD. You need right. to put some CBG in that. And though, though right now we know that most plants, once they reach maturity, CBG level is way less than like 0.01%. But if you harvest in the first six weeks, there's more CBG than there is CBD and THC because CBG turns into THC and CBD. Right. So therefore, if you increase the amount of CBG, you could have a product that has maybe 1% CBG and elicit a bigger response, especially, I think, with the bioavailability of the CBD. And, and the other thing people have to realize is THC binds to the cannabinoid receptors. Yes. So does beta-caryophylline, a terpene. Mm -hmm. yes. So CBD doesn't really bind to those receptors. It's not really activating the endocannabinoid system. It's inhibiting this enzyme that allows you to produce more of your own, or it's acting as this partial uh, agonist, almost like an inverse agonist, at the cannabinoid receptor so that it blocks the intoxicating effects of THC. But if you don't have a little bit of THC or beta-caryophylline in your products, it's not activating the endocannabinoid right. system. It's and not going to permeate cell wall, right? So when, right. So when people get nervous about THC, they have to understand that they would probably use a lot more volume of a CBD isolate to get to the same results as if they had other cannabinoids, which is, you know, the, the point of the entourage effect. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, so in your practice, so shifted over and decided, okay, I'm going to try seeing if I can help patients in a broader approach by providing CBD. What kind of patients do you see? I see chronic pain is probably the, the uh, most common diagnosis. And I still do regular pain management and interventional pain management. Um, but in terms of cannabis, I get patients who have a lot of neurodegenerative diseases. I get MS, Parkinson's, dementia patients, uh, cancer patients is very common. I get a lot of people who just have anxiety and insomnia. Mm -hmm. And whether they've been using cannabis or they are addicted to their Ambien and, or their pain medication or they just need to sleep. We have such a problem with sleep these days. And, mm -hmm. and also mental illness is a huge concern. If that's definitely increasing. A lot of 
uh, people have addiction to alcohol or food or, you know, even pharmaceuticals. So I see, I see a little bit of everything. I even started seeing uh, children recently. And so I see some ADHD and um, seizures is another one, but mainly pain, anxiety, insomnia, and some of the neurodegenerative diseases, as well as cancer. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, a lot of people don't know, again, historically, you know, I think farmers recognized back in the late 1500s, early 1600s, that, you know, the hemp seed plant, hemp seeds was the, is one of the highest protein laden seeds on the planet. And we, you know, contrary to what a lot of you guys out there don't know or don't believe, you know, we as human beings ate a lot of hemp seed in the early 1600s, late 1600s, 1700s, and even 1800s. We were eating porridges with seed, with with hemp seed in it. And hemp seed has, though it's lower in THC, has almost all of the other cannabinoids in there. And so we were literally stimulating, I think, our endocannabinoid system and not even knowing it. It wasn't until, you know, 1931 when we decided to pass the Marijuana Tax Act, where, you know, that we basically stopped everyone from eating. Now we take a look at, you know, the onslaught of various illnesses. And I think that's been literally, I think, uh, part of it's because of the fact that we've thrown our endocannabinoid system so out of whack. Right. There's toxins, our, our poor nutrition, the way that food is grown, mm -hmm. and the 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 other thing is really social media and, and technology. So people are in such a rush. They're doing so many things at once. They're not really taking care of themselves. They're not really uh, preparing their food or trying to eliminate toxins in the way that before when people had more time, they would, you know, cook their meals and, and make better decisions. I think that um, having the marketing issue behind CBD makes people a little bit nervous though. So when you say hemp or when you say CBD, yes. it makes them wonder, is this, does this product really have CBD in it? Cause I've heard that over 70% of these tinctures are mislabeled or when this says hemp powder or protein, does it have CBD in it? So a lot right. of it, it becomes a marketing issue where it's not FDA approved and it's not really supposed to be looked at as a dietary supplement, kind of like the supplement industry, how right. Some things you take and they're not even metabolized in the place where they're supposed to be. So it's it's right. it's really the patient's just nervous that they're going to waste their money. Well, you also know that prior to, before the hemp bill, you could buy hemp seed protein in the United States of America. You could buy it and eat it. Now, did it have higher levels of CBD in it? No, because we weren't isolating CBD and adding it back to the product, but you were getting a broader spectrum of cannabinoids back then. I used to eat, see, I was eating hemp seed protein from 2000 to 2010 on a daily basis. Every single day, putting it in smoothies and eating it and consuming it. Um, but now that we've hit this point now where, you know, first off, I think a lot of people who are purchasing a lot of products out there don't even understand how some of those products are even manufactured. You know, uh, if, uh, anybody who's, who's still using any form of a tain, you know, uh, 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 to extract cannabinoids should be locked up. I mean, I, I, you're not going to walk out and put your mouth around the exhaust pipe of a car. So why the devil would you put something like that in your lungs? Well, and that's the other problem is the the whole black market issue. So they used to say, you know, it's a gateway drug. That's because people were buying it on the street, had access to other things. We really now say it's an exit drug because it gets you off of other medications. Totally. But 
the 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 whole vaping epidemic, the problem with you know this pneumonia and people passing away. A lot of it's all black market. And that issues. has nothing to do with the cannabinoids. It has right. to do with the fillers. Right, and it has to do you know potentially that vitamin E acetate. People are using tinctures, putting them in vapes. We're not supposed to be inhaling a fat soluble vitamin, and so people who are making this medicine because it really is medicine are not being it's not controlled and that's that's Ed education they have no knowledge of what they're doing they're just trying to jump on the green rush right and the gold rush trying to make as much money as they can before somebody steps on their head and and, the, and, it, and it's feeding the stigma because we right. have the stigma of cannabis you know is is intoxicating and makes you become lazy and and doesn't look at it like medicine and now it's cannabis can potentially cause pneumonia. So right. it's changing the stigma, but also in a negative way because things are not controlled. It, none of that happens in a medical dispensary. It's all third-party lab tested. Correct. You get the certificate of analysis with all your contaminants and cannabinoids. So the, the thing is really to come out with medication or cannabis in ratios of different cannabinoids so, so we understand dosing and milligrams. That's really the next step. And what's your approach when a patient comes to you what is your approach when you sit down with an individual patient and try to think that through and work that out? That's a, that's a great question because you really have to understand the patient. You have to know, have they, did they have any experience with marijuana in the past? Are they fearful of the intoxicating effects? And then what condition they have? So certain things can benefit from a full spectrum CBD, let's say anxiety or even seizures perhaps or inflammation. But if you want to get THC involved, we have to know, well, you, do you work full time? Are you nervous about the potential uh, psychoactive effects? And then we make ratios. And a lot of the dispensaries have different ratios so that the CBD will impair, will inhibit the intoxicating effects. And then we have to talk about route of administration. So it, we like to start low and, and increase slowly. And so usually a tincture or wa water soluble solution is the most effective to get to the right dose and using the right ratio. And sometimes they'll have multiple different medications. They'll have something for at night, um, there's CBD with CBN products we have in the dispensary. Right. We don't have to use THC for sleep. Or there's um, potentially CBD products that can be used during the day while someone's at work, and then when they come home, they can add in the THC. So it's really understanding what condition they have, how sensitive they are to THC, and then what route of administration. If they have panic attacks versus chronic anxiety, that's the difference right. of inhalation versus a longer-acting capsule or, or tincture, you know, if you mm -hmm. want to fall asleep or stay asleep. So it's trying to understand what we're treating. And then, and then what happens over time is they really end up understanding what it's doing to so many parts of their body because it has such a wide therapeutic potential that it makes them realize, okay, let's challenge myself a little bit more. Let's increase the dose or let's switch to a one-to-one -one as opposed to a five-to-one. Mm -hmm. And then they get more comfortable with cannabis and they also build some tolerance. So they're having less of that intoxicating effect over time. Sure. And, and again, this is individualized because it's also based on a person's metabolism, their own body fat content, all those kinds of things, right? Right. And pharmaceuticals that they're on, the way that they metabolize certain medications, genetics. There's, there's a lot of things that actually go into it, which is why we try to explain to physicians, you have to think differently. This is not just this medication comes in this milligrams and that that's what we use. It has to be personalized. We have to understand what their goals are and what's going on in their body and try to get them back to to be in balance. And that's what's happened over time is that because of environmental things, genetics, pharmaceuticals, they are now no longer in balance, which creates some type of um, excitotoxicity or uh, imbalance in their neurotransmitters, which 
causes chronic disease or causes a symptom that we now recognize and want to stop it before it becomes chronic. So, you know, I'm going to run out of time so quickly because it's been such a great conversation. But I want to talk a little bit more about the research area that you're working in. And you're doing a lot of research right now, right? So let's yeah. talk about it. So I have um, an IRB-approved study through FIU, and we have enrolled patients that are on opioids for chronic pain, and they all become medical marijuana patients, and we monitor them every three months to see how much of their opioids they're able to decrease and how much of their other medications, how their sleep may improve, how their quality now, of life. Do you provide the cannabis or this is cannabis that they provide to themselves? They, they the, buy it in the dispensaries. Dispensary, you bring that in, take a look at each one because each batch of, of, of you know medication from a dispensary, though there is consistency in the fact that you don't find you know deleterious you know uh, additives in pharmaceutical in, in the, the what the, the dispensary may be providing. Every individual batch is pretty much different. Yeah, that's correct. So a lot of times they'll also run out of products. So someone's taking a certain product that's helping them and they go back to the dispensary and that strain or cultivar or ratio is no longer there. So they, they bring in their medication, but it's really just an understanding of, again, how sensitive they are to THC, how effective it is for pain. And we teach them really to add it to their medication. So you can't get off your opioids without adding something, right? right. So people, a lot of physicians are very nervous to have a patient on opioids and then add cannabis. And I want to assure them that's the only way to help them get off their opioids because they're having some type of pain relief and also a mind-body connection to understand what's going on. And it, it helps with withdrawal symptoms. Mm -hmm. So all of that is happening at the same time, again, from one plant. And that's really what's so amazing about cannabis. So you add the cannabis to the opioid and then they start reducing the opioids. Right. And they reduce it much faster if they're able to have cannabis there as often as they need it. And that we, so a lot of the studies, there's been two studies, one at Hebrew University, one University of Michigan, and they've seen almost a 50% reduction in opioids and a almost uh, between 45 and 65 were the two studies improvement in quality of life. So it's not just we're taking away your medicine. It's also we're improving your life, mm -hmm. your function, the, the quality of life. I mean, we all want to live our best life. We all want to optimize, you know, our time while we're here. And so that's the beauty of the endocannabinoid system. The receptors are located all throughout our central nervous system in all of our tissues and organs. Right. There's CB1 in the brain, CB2 in the organs, right? Right. And then CBD activates almost 65 receptors. So, so you know, our 5-HT, our, our serotonin uh, pathways and TRPV1, which also has to do with pain, what capsaicin is uh, activated is activating in the body. So there's so many other receptors that CBD works on outside of the endocannabinoid system. And that's kind of the exciting thing about the future of cannabis medicine, because we can modulate the endocannabinoid system. We can affect the enzymes. We can affect the receptors. It's not just adding cannabinoids. And hopefully in the future, they'll find a way to test the level of our naturally occurring cannabinoids so that we know how we are in balance or not and, and see if that actually... Um, relates to our symptoms or see if by increasing our naturally occurring production of our cannabinoids, we're able to be in balance or have a better quality of life. So mm -hmm. a lot of those endocannabinoid deficiency syndromes like fibromyalgia, IBS, chronic fatigue syndrome, migraines, patients are suffering on medications that are not even very effective. When you put those people on cannabis, it's incredible to see how they sleep, they go back to work, they're, they're off their meds. It's, it's a whole, um, it's a, it's, it's interesting because we're giving these patients a diagnosis with no 
imaging, with no blood work, with, with nothing objective. And so now seeing them, you know, take cannabis, it would be nice to see perhaps their endogenous cannabinoids levels are changing. And then the interesting thing about that population is once they're on cannabis and they feel better, they're actually able to decrease the amount of cannabis they need. So I think that has to do with us producing more of our own, stimulating the endocannabinoids. Stimulating let it, let it do what it's supposed to do. Right. The other, um, the other research I'm very involved in is uh, with a nano water soluble uh, cannabis product. And, and that seems to be the most bioavailable way of using cannabis. It has the fastest onset. Um, it's really because cannabis is lipid soluble. And so in order to have a faster onset, we have to put it into a very small particle size, a nanoparticle, using mechanical en um, energy or sonication from an ultrasound so that the particle size is so small so we're able to absorb it much faster. And then we see that it is much more bioavailable. So instead of using tinctures, oil-based, we can use water-soluble forms of cannabis, almost like alcohol. When you drink mm -hmm. alcohol, you feel it. Uh, you know, you feel it faster. It has a, a higher bioavailability. Why not just drink cannabis? So right. the, the same way that people are nervous about what's in the vapes or if mm -hmm. there's any dangers behind smoking or the onset of a tincture really has a lot of a lot to do with what you've eaten, how, you know, right. when you've eaten. So you can get rid of all that by actually making it into this water compatible product. So I think we'll see more of that. However, what's going to happen because of this green rush is people are going to start producing what they call a nano emulsion or water soluble cannabinoid product that's not going to be true nano water right. soluble. And that's going to be the issue. Again, it's just making money where perhaps the cannabinoids are stuck on the plastic of the water bottle and they're not getting anything and they're paying right. a lot of money. So it, it, we, we have to regulate it also in, in that sense that everything should be tested and we need ways to test what's coming up. We weren't testing for vitamin E acetate before this happened. Now the labs will start testing for that. Same thing, we need the technology to test, well, is this a nanoparticle or not? And also we need the studies to show it's, it's almost a five times higher bioavailability using it in this water compatible form. And in that water compatible form, it may end up uh, not only using less, but um, yeah, I mean, you, you could probably get away with using quite a bit less. That, yeah, that's the point is you'll save a lot of money actually because you need less milligrams because it's more bioavailable. Right. And it works faster, so you don't have to smoke or vape. Mm -hmm. So it's a faster way of, of inhaling. So there's a lot of interesting technology uh, and the fact that it is a lipid soluble plant makes the future a little bit more exciting because what else can we do with this and what, what other fat soluble products are there and, and how can we use, you know, for example, vitamin D is, is also fat soluble. Um, there's liposomal products. So, so how can we see what's happened in the past and, and try to make it work for cannabis? Right. So, you know, we're almost out of time. What, what do you think is, is the, you know, the, how long do you think it's going to be before we get more and more doctors to at least share, you know, your sentiment, the way you are thinking about this? Is it going to be 10 years, 20 years before we finally get doctors to come around? I think they're, 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 it's going to be sooner. And the reason I think it's going to be sooner is because they are going to see that their patients are using it. And when someone has a firsthand experience with a family member or a patient, and they're just so blown away by the results, it makes them a little bit more open-minded. So I think that we need to start teaching in a medical school. And I think the bigger issue is that we can't use it in hospitals and skilled nursing facilities that take insurance. And so once we're able to um, you know, use it as no longer a schedule one drug, and they see that nurses can administer this medication and 
uh, more of the pharmaceutical companies come out with non-synthetic cannabinoids, like non you know, non-synthetic. Like Sativex, we're like the only country that doesn't have you know an FDA approval for for Sativex, and right. and that's great that GW Pharmaceuticals is doing a lot of this research. But I think that more and more people will see. Maybe I live in my bubble, and I just you know I'm such an advocate. But I think that doctors are opening up to it, and I think that patients are too, because I would tell you that most of my patients are over 65. Those are the right. ones who who use most of the money from pharmaceuticals. And, and if they would legalize uh, medical marijuana, we would save over $400 million. You know, there's a, there's a, a crazy high number. Uh, well, just, you know, when you take a look at what's going on in Israel now for the last 10 years, uh, you know, last almost 12 years, Israel recognized cannabis as a geriatric drug almost 10 years ago. So you at the age of 70, you can walk into three hospitals down there, turn in your ID, show them that you're 70 years old, and you walk out with your prescription. And and it's so interesting seeing a 85-year-old with their daughter who's, let's say, 60, and the 85-year-old is is telling me, just give me that cannabis already because I'm, I'm sick of being constipated or I'm, right. I'm sick of being sleepy all day or I have so many side effects and I'm, I'm sick of taking all these medications. And then you have that, that population, their, their kids who are asking a million questions, so concerned. And so mm -hmm. it's interesting seeing how the elderly are leading the way also because they're frustrated with Western medicine. And what we should learn being young is how can we prevent being in this situation where we're on these pharmaceuticals? How can right. we optimize our endocannabinoid system and and uh, minimize the chronic conditions that will happen later on? Well, I'm telling you, we have been talking to a double board certified physician who understands the value of cannabis and cannabinoids. And I think this is one of those you know, uh, podcasts I'm really proud of. I'm really proud that you were able to share a lot of information here because you know, uh, this is the discussion that people are having, but they don't have a wealth of knowledge that go behind it. So you've been able to bring that to the table for us. Thank you so much, Dr. Warner. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back too. You Great. Know, I'd I, love to come back. I, I want to make sure that people get an opportunity. If they miss this one, they can catch you the next one. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel.